Hello and welcome to the Global Month Ahead, a special edition. My name is Isabel Trick and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Normally, at the beginning of each month, I will get together with colleagues from across Global Council to delve deeper into three interesting developments that are going to shape the month ahead. But you might have noticed that it's not quite the beginning of the month. And if you're a loyal listener, you would have noticed that in December, I actually said there wasn't going to be a January episode. So why are we here? We are here with a special edition because we are going to focus on the politics of food. Why? Because each January, Global Council hosts our flagship conference, The Politics Off. Each year, it tackles a major issue that we really believe will shape the year ahead. And this year, the focus is on food. And if you think that maybe sounds like a surprising topic for a political conference, you will find that access to resources and food really chief among them has always been one of the most deeply political questions out there especially if you're looking at the impact of the invasion of Ukraine, which has really disrupted um, supplies from two of the world's largest grain exporters. And that has caused really serious ripple effects around the world. Our conference is going to look at different aspects of that. We're going to tackle technological, regulatory and geopolitical challenges that food systems are facing around the world in 2023. And today I'm going to speak with three colleagues who will be covering different aspects of this when the conference comes around at the end of the month. It's also exciting to say that this year is actually going to be our biggest and most international political of conference yet. We're really going to take full advantage of our increasingly international scopes and we're going to have in-person events in DC, that one's already taken place, in London, Brussels and Doha still coming up and online events in Singapore. And I'm going to include some info on how to take part in person or online at the end of the episode and in our show notes. Um, but for now, let's jump in. Welcome, Raf. Very happy to have you here. Welcome to the Global Month Ahead podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, so for the rest of you, Raf Malek, he leads our research and insights function at GC, which is the part of a business that really focuses on carrying out kind of bespoke audience research. And for the politics of food, Raf has been working on some original GC consumer research to really help inform our conference. Raf, this is the first, um, first time for you to be on this podcast, and I would love to hear a little bit more about what we mean when we say original GC consumer research. Maybe can you provide a bit of an overview of the objectives of the research and how you went about it? Yes, of course. So as part of our Politics of Food conference, uh, we wanted to complement the views of the various experts and opinion formers participating in the various events by seeking to introduce and understand the consumer perspective. So um, we designed and conducted a representative online survey of over 6,000 consumers across six different countries, China, Egypt, Germany, India, the UK and the US. Uh, those countries were chosen on the basis that they represented a variety of geographies and a mix of developed and emerging economies. And we covered a range of topics in the research, including knowledge of different aspects of food production, distribution and consumption, prioritization of food policy objectives, support for different food policy initiatives, attitudes to crucial policy trade-offs and trust in food businesses and other actors and institutions. That sounds like a really fascinating sample of, of different countries, especially like the emerging markets and developed markets split. And how did you carry out the, the survey? Did you um, Was it an online survey or did you get on the forum to, to lots of different people? Yeah, this was an, this was an online survey that we conducted um, and um, that meant that we could sort of really, really efficiently and easily reach uh, consumers um, within a reasonable time span and fieldwork was conducted 
uh, in December last year. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I guess uh, speaking to 6,000 people on the phone might have been a slightly challenging request for, for you and the team. Um, and I don't want to really spoil um, all of the findings of your research, because this will re be, really be a crucial part of our conference. But I would be curious to get some snippets of, of what you found. Maybe to start with, I'd be interested in hearing whether you found that food policy really matters to people. Um Good question. In short, yes, we asked survey respondents to identify the policy issues that they consider most important for their countries to prioritize. Um, and we gave them a list of 10 broad policy issues. And um, one of them was ensuring food is healthy, sustainable and affordable. And that ranked either first, second or third out of all the 10 policy issues in all six markets. So it ranked ahead of education, energy, carbon reduction, defense, housing, and transport. The only policy issue to rank higher than food was provision of healthcare. And when trying to understand why food policy matters to consumers, and um, we found that ensuring um, affordability and reliable access to safe food and water were considered top issues, but ensuring food is healthy also ranked highly, um, particularly in China where it was actually the most important concern. Um, issues to do with food production uh, and the impacts of food production on the environment, animal welfare, or treatment of workers were generally lower order issues. That's fascinating, especially to see that there's so much consistency across such a range of, of different countries. Maybe the flip side of um, people caring a lot about the topic would be, did you find that people know a lot about it as well? Um, I think it's fair to say that knowledge is limited. Um, consumers feel quite confident in their understanding of the impact of food on their own health. Um, they like to think that they've got a good grasp of, of, of what, what that means, um, but feel much less knowledgeable about how food is um, produced, distributed, regulated, and, and taxed. Um, we, we, we didn't want to rely solely on how confident people feel about their own understanding, but we actually wanted to put some of those claims to the test. Um, and we asked consumers to guess which market their country was most reliant on for imported food. Uh, and those estimates were not particularly accurate. Um, only 14% of Germans, for example, correctly guessed that the Netherlands was their country's largest import market. And generally speaking, the trend was for consumers to overestimate the importance of larger countries and underestimate more geographically proximate countries. For example, UK consumers tended to guess that Spain and the US were their largest import markets, um, and, you, and very few correctly guessed that Netherlands or Ireland were actually um, where, where lots of their food came from. I think that's an absolutely fascinating um, kind of bit of insight here, especially that you essentially tested um, people's self-assessment. And um, as a German being caught out here in each, uh, immediately, I don't think I would have um, picked the, the Netherlands either as a, as a top um, import source, even though uh, once you think about it, it does make sense. They're a massive kind of agricultural state. Farmers, I think, in the Netherlands are an absolute backbone of, of the economy. So yeah, it checks out. But very interesting that that might not be top of mind for consumers. And it actually also leads me quite neatly into um, another question I had for you, which I mean, has maybe been especially relevant given the invasion of Ukraine and the massive disruption to food trade, um, both during the war um, in Ukraine, but also kind of previously due to COVID. And that is about the trade in food between different countries. 
is that something that countries are or that people are quite supportive of or do we find quite kind of protective tendencies in in consumers so i think um what we what we find here is a very clear demonstration of perhaps some inconsistencies or tensions in consumers minds that perhaps haven't quite been resolved on the one hand a majority of consumers in all six markets support increasing trade between their own countries and the wider world in theory um, but on the other hand consumers are also in favor of restricting imports in several circumstances for example a large majority of the population in each country is in favor of restricting imports from countries with lower environmental labor or animal welfare standards and a similarly large majority is in favor of encouraging people to buy locally to reduce reliance on imports and reduce carbon emissions. And generally speaking, one of the themes that came through very clearly from the survey was that ensuring less reliance on imported food and trying to move towards self-sufficiency ranks as a very high priority for consumers. Um, and um, unfortunately, we don't have, we, we weren't able to carry out this survey um, this time last year, but it would have been fascinating to understand what the impact of the war in Ukraine, uh, as you mentioned, has been on the importance of of um, self-sufficiency and re reducing reliance on imported food. Um, coming back to the question that you asked previously about how much consumers know about um, food production, um, the one outlier was was Egypt, um, where we found actually that a really sort of rather respectable proportion of the population correctly identified Russia and Ukraine as among its largest import markets, perhaps reflecting um, heightened awareness and increased media coverage of Egypt's reliance on those two countries for much of its food in the past year. The Egypt topic is absolutely fascinating. I remember when I was doing some of my kind of initial assessments for the impact that the war in Ukraine had on different African countries, Egypt really did stand out as one of the largest importers of wheat. And they have this absolutely huge um, subsidized um, bread program. And so for them, kind of the not just the shortages, but also the price increases in food must have been felt very, very acutely, and I think had really strong economic um, consequences there. So I'm in a way not surprised that the Egyptians maybe had a better grasp of this, but absolutely fascinating um, topic. I don't want to speak um, too much longer because, as I said, I don't want to give away everything that we found, but maybe I have a last question for you, which is, was there something that really surprised you, a kind of particularly um, unusual or surprising finding that you had not expected before you started this research? So, so I think there were, there were lots of interesting um, findings in the research and lots of sort of little nuggets um, that, that will be included in our um, report. Um, but I think I think one thing that struck me particularly was the um, low levels of trust in food businesses. Um, and that's something that, that I think was quite consistent across the six markets that we surveyed. Most consumers, when it comes to food, trust friends and family, doctors uh, and scientists. Trust in farmers is generally pretty high across the board, but trust in other food businesses, including retailers, restaurants and manufacturers, is much more limited. Um, to give you an example, only, th only four in 10 UK consumers trust food outlets like restaurants completely or a great deal in relation to food. And only 44% of German consumers 
say that they trust food companies to produce food that is safe to consume. So um, the, the survey unearthed lots of food policy challenges that consumers identify and prioritize and think are important, but there's clearly not much trust um, in businesses to help solve them. I mean, this is going to be some absolutely fascinating insight that I'm sure lots of our clients, um, especially those who might come from some of the industries where there is maybe less trust than they may have expected, will be very, very keen um, to dig into. Um, can't wait for it all to happen um, when the events come to London, Brussels and our other offices. So thanks very much, Raf. Um, it's been a pleasure talk um, talking about this with you. Thanks for having me on. And next up, we have Stephen Adams. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, Isabel. So Stephen is a senior director at Global Council, and he has been instrumental in pulling all of the content of this conference together. So Stephen, before you came on, I've had a really interesting conversation with Raf about what his survey has found about the support for trade, um, about the support for trade in food amongst consumers. And what he found was that Egyptians are very supportive and Germans are the least in favor of increasing trade in food, which possibly explains a little bit what's been happening over the last year and kind of Egypt's um, intense reliance on, on food imports. But we also touched on the issue that people don't necessarily actually understand the topic very well. So hopefully I thought you could help us out. And so I would love for you to explain the basic role of trade in global food supply. Okay, well, that's a huge question. I mean, I think it's useful maybe to distinguish between perhaps two basic categories of trade in food because they have quite different implications. So obviously, we, we trade a huge amount, a huge amount of food, but we trade different kinds of food. And the basic distinction that I think is useful is the distinction between, broadly speaking, processed foods, so finished foodstuffs, and the trade in the basic commodities that are the absolute bedrock of the global diet. And above all, that's cereals. So we might think about the distinction between trade in processed food and trade in the core calories that basically keep the global population alive, that, are, that account for about 50% of the global diet. Now, obviously, there are lots of interesting questions around trade in processed foods. It's on the whole, quite a difficult thing to do. It's subject to a whole range of um, sanitary and phytosanitary requirements that can make it quite difficult to move food across borders. That's not, on the whole, true of trade in things like cereals or rice. They're bulk commodities, and actually, they're relatively they're relatively simple to move around the world. The basic problem is not so much uh, moving them across borders. It's the fact that they are unevenly distributed across the world's surface in terms of their point of origin for obvious reasons. Uh, cereals don't grow everywhere as a crop, um, whether you're talking about wheat or rice. There are certain geographical contexts uh, that are more or less appropriate, and those are not evenly spread over the surface of the world. And they're certainly not spread over the surface of the world in a way that overlaps perfectly with demand for calories. And if you had to sum up Egypt's basic problem, of course, is that it has a mismatch between its capacity to produce calories and its need to consume them. So the, in many ways, the kind of when we think about the basic problem of food security, we're not thinking about, can you move sausages from Great Britain to Northern Ireland? We're thinking about the problem of, can you move wheat from the world's great grain baskets in the United States and Russia and Ukraine, or rice from the world's great paddy fields of Asia to the markets that depend on those calories. I think you're really hitting the nail on the head here in terms of how important the question of uneven distribution is. 
And I think what is most interesting is partially how this has changed and developed developed over the last few decades. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on where the big changes have been coming from. Have there been some countries that have really increased their global contribution to to um, food, to either um, kind of to the to the key grains that we were talking about, such as rice and cereals? And what have the implications been of of that change? Yeah, well, there has. I mean, at one level, the basic picture is relatively stable. And that's partly because of the, the factors we were just discussing, that Singapore will never be one of the world's biggest cereal producers. Uh, the, 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 the constraints on that happening are simply insuperable. But of course, the other dimension in terms of global supply is the distribution of capacity, uh, which is a fundamentally an environmental variable and productivity and the, the so the ability to get more out of a defined piece of land and in many respects the the story of the late 20th century and the early 21st century has been one of agricultural productivity so on the whole if you go back 30 years the markets that are producing wheat or rice or other grains are the same markets maize are the markets that are producing them now but generally speaking they are producing them in much much greater volumes and that's that's essentially a function of improvements in agricultural productivity now the the area where that change in productivity has really registered above all is in the states of former soviet union in terms of the introduction of new forms of agricultural productivity drivers in russia and in particular in Ukraine. So if we were going to compare the, the sort of calorie superpowers of 1992 with the calorie superpowers of 2022, the big change you would immediately notice is a relative shift in the market dominance of North America, Canada and the United States, and the emergence of, in particular, two big new calorie superpowers, Russia and Ukraine. And obviously, it, you asked about implications. It doesn't take a genius to work out that that diversification away from the United States towards Russia and Ukraine, five years ago, we would see it very differently from how we see it now. Because of course, one of the big consequences uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been to disrupt that supply of grain on which, in particular, the markets of well, Europe to some extent, but certainly the markets of North Africa. And again, Egypt stands out here. Most of its wheat comes from the Black Sea or is transported through the Black Sea. The, the war has been a key variable in food security because of the, um, the, the massive improvement of agricultural productivity or cereal, cereal development productivity in Russia and Ukraine. So the, the basic picture over the last 30 years, if you had to sum it up, a big rise in agricultural productivity everywhere, um, a big rise in global demand, of course. Uh, economic growth essentially tracks demand for calories. It's a, it's a basic feature of a developing society that it both eats more and uh, will sometimes change the composition of its diet a little bit more towards meat, which of course puts additional strain on the world's grain supplies to feed those animals. So we've seen a big surge in demand that's been matched by a big surge in supply through agricultural productivity improvements. And the among the mix of the really big exporters has been the emergence of Russia and Ukraine. It's fascinating. I especially like the point you just made about how diets change as well. It's been a big topic in, in Africa over the last year where in some countries people have really pushed back. And it's like if diets are becoming more westernized, people are eating more bread and shifting away from um, kind of local grains or um, kind of like yeah, just different types of food that were previously eaten. That, of course, in many cases does increase that dependency on some of these um, 
calorie superpowers. And that has, of course, mean that, meant that really food security, I think, has never been higher on the agenda or has not been higher on the agenda, at least for a long time. Maybe 2008 was another crunch point there and the Arab Spring was another crunch point. But it certainly is very high on the agenda um, this year and was last year. And with it being such a point of focus, what type of solutions have you seen um, that policymakers are adopting to deal with those new challenges, but also, I suppose, some of the challenges that have um, that have existed for, for certain years and decades? Probably the single most important thing that policymakers do uh, is to mess with the market's capacity to try and distribute these resources among the various sources of demand in the world. And you, you mentioned there um, the, the period after 2008, where we had a big spike in um, uh, food security. Um, and, and a big part of that was actually driven by the instinct in uh, large food exporters to essentially ring fence their supply through things like export restrictions. And as soon as you do that, um, you are, of course, potentially causing a food security problem for the, the importers who are dependent on your supply. Um, and that's happened to some extent as well uh, over the last six months or so. And I mean, in some ways, it's understandable that politicians reach for tools like export restrictions if they are concerned about domestic supply and domestic sufficiency. But of course, the implication in a world in which there are 10 importers for every exporter is that if you are restricting exports, then you are probably cutting off somebody else's supply. I mean, in terms of in terms of proactively trying to make the global market work better, it's actually quite difficult to point to anything that's being done at the sort of level of multilateral policy, although obviously the question of food security is the perennial on the development agenda. The, the main thing I think probably that countries have done has been to unilaterally lower things like tariff costs for imported food. Uh, again, it's a, it's a no-brainer in many ways. Uh, there's no point taxing your external food supply in, unless you are consciously trying to keep imports out to protect um, domestic supply. But of course, in the, in the, in the case of a, a state like Egypt, there's no domestic supply really to protect. And that's, of course, in many cases, actually, particularly in something like cereal production, that's the case for many, many states. So the main thing that policymakers tend to do, actually, is to take the kind of action that probably hurts rather than helps. Um, that's a that's a really interesting point, especially because we um, really are probably staring at another year where certainly the challenges that have led to um, grains and cereals being in such um, short supply are not going to disappear. I don't think um, even the most optimistic people are expecting a end to the Russia-Ukraine war anytime soon. Maybe if we're looking at one slightly positive aspect is that my understanding was that back in 2008, one of the things that really contributed to there being a greater food crisis was that um, on top of um, maize and corn and um, wheat, there were also big restrictions on rice, which I think currently at least is not the case. So maybe that's one slightly positive uh, note to leave us on for, for the year, unless there's anything else you're thinking we might be looking forward to in 2023. Probably the, the most important thing is that we are as aware as we have ever been of the extent to which the global economy, this is an unavoidably global problem. And uh, we need to think about food security as a global distribution problem. And to the extent that policymakers have clocked that and they're thinking about it that way, and they're not just thinking about the first order impacts in terms, in terms of the problem, they're, they're also thinking about the secondary impacts of food insecurity. So the political insecurity that can flow from the unavailability of the necessary level of calories, the sovereign debt problems that can flow from 
the unavailability of the necessary level of calories. And it's going to require uh, some some fairly careful and fairly intelligent policymaking to deal with all of those problems. Some of it's going to be about making the market work as well as it can. Some of it is going to be about targeted, I suspect, food aid uh, to the points of greatest vulnerability or weakness in the system, you know, food aid essentially as a geopolitical stabilizer. Some of it is going to involve, uh, um, as you know, as well as anyone, Isabel, some of it is going to involve a very the need for a very constructive dialogue around sovereign debt sustainability and some of the societies which are being put under strain by food insecurity. So, I, I mean, the fact that we at least, I think, think about this as a global problem now, I mean, maybe that's just that's that's the starting point, but nevertheless, it's an important starting point. Absolutely, and I think people really um, realize that this is an issue that's going to define the, the year ahead. And so, hopefully, we will have some very very exciting discussions um, once the events take place in London, Brussels, um, Singapore, and Doha. Thanks very much, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Hi, Lorna. Great to have you here. Hi, Isabel. Lorna Ritchie leads our climate and sustainability practice here at GC. And Lorna is actually hosting one of the panel events, part of the Politics of Food Conference in London. And that panel is going to touch on the intersection between food, the environment and sustainability. And to get us started, Lorna, I'd be really interested in hearing a bit more about what the key is to that intersection between food and the environment and what impact food systems actually have on the environment. Yeah, definitely. So when you talk about reducing emissions and the environment, a lot lot of people automatically think about energy systems. But food systems globally account for about 35% of emissions. And most of this comes from land use and land change, which essentially means how you use the land. So deforestation, fertilisers, emissions from livestock are a huge proportion of uh, global emissions. And the rest comes from the transportation and waste of food itself. Over the last 25 years, about three times the size of France has been deforested globally. And most deforestation, so around 90%, is caused by food production. And most of this is in the tropics. And most of this is for livestock, either through grazing or from uh, food production for livestock itself. So the environmental impact of our current food systems is, is huge. And we need to make a significant shift in the way we deal with our food systems in order to meet net zero commitments by 2050. And there's also a lot of co-benefits uh, from improving environmental impact of our food systems. So lots of the other areas of politics of food that we're looking at through our summit will also be benefit from uh, reduction in emissions and improvement environmental factors. So, for example, moving to a low meat diet is also much healthier, helps you lose weight. um, And also using locally sourced food supports both local communities and food security. If we could zoom in a bit, I'd be really interested to hear how individual countries are are dealing with this question. And maybe if if we look at the UK, because I would say in some things like energy systems innovation, the UK is considered a bit of a leader. So some things are definitely going right. There are lots of focus on EVs and questions like that. Would you say that's true for, for food as well? How is the UK doing on that front? When it comes to looking at decarbonisation of food, the UK is falling much further behind than other countries and areas such as the EU. The main focus when it comes to decarbonisation of government policy to date has been on energy systems and transportation, which is understandable, especially now at the moment where we've got the energy crisis. Um, There's the co-benefit of reducing emissions and increasing energy security. Um, But it's been particularly reluctant to tackle decarbonisation of food systems. And it's, it's 
partly because it's a very politically challenging issue to address with behaviour change being one of the most significant changes that can be made um, to reduce emissions. And so politicians are, rightly or wrongly, uh, very reluctant to intervene on, to have opinions on people's diets. But last year, the UK government brought out the food strategy, and this committed to a range of different interventions that they would do. Uh, so they committed to spend £270 million on an innovation programme, which would look at both uh, a range of things, but included alternative proteins and committed to launch a call for evidence on the use of adjusting feed feed additives so that you can reduce the emissions from livestock. They've also committed in that strategy to launching a, a land use framework, looking at how land is used across the UK and consulting on um, procurement standards within government. So government itself is actually a huge buyer of food. And so by changing the standards that they have for the environmental credentials of the food, they can lead to significant decarbonisation of food system. So they have a kind of aspirational target at the moment for 50% of food spend to be on local food or food with a higher environmental standard. However, the food strategy was criticised quite widely because one of the things it didn't address was this issue of behaviour change. Um, And it didn't suggest any kind of strategic approaches to reducing meat consumption. And there's really a kind of sliding scale of how interventionist a government can be. So on the one hand, you have some that are calling for meat taxes, but then there's also much more subtle policies that a government can introduce to nudge behaviour in in the right direction, which even that the government has so far been reluctant to um, bring out. So the the Committee on Climate Change, who are the independent body that advise the UK government on um, environmental and climate policies, they have called for the UK government to do more on these demand side policies. And in the EU, you're seeing a range of policies being discussed at the moment, including eco-labelling, which is essentially you red, amber, green label your food. So you can, at a glance as a consumer, see what the environmental impact of that food might be. Interesting, that would kind of mirror what we're already seeing um, in UK supermarkets, for instance, where we have kind of like the traffic light labels on various health aspects. So that would kind of try to replicate that on environmental impacts. Yeah, exactly like that. So as well as you have the health labels and then you also have the environmental labels as well. And on the health side, they've been extremely successful in nudging people in the right direction. There's also, um, last year, there was the Henry Dimbleby brought out then his national food strategy, which was commissioned by the UK government. And that proposed to go further than the UK's food strategy did in the end with reducing meat consumption. But in addition to nudging approaches, um, you've also got other um, policies which are being introduced elsewhere, which... Um, reduce the impact of the food that we consume. So, for example, in the EU, you've got deforestation regulation coming out at the moment, which makes all importers of commodities linked to deforestation prove that they've not come from illegally deforested areas. And that's something which the UK hasn't got in place at the moment, but is looking to follow suit. And it's likely to be quite a similar regulation. So it's one to watch within the EU. So as well as changing the food we import, we can also reduce emissions from the food we produce domestically. So regenerative agriculture is another area that's really interesting at the moment and can have win-win. So you can introduce things like crop rotation and other sustainable practices 
and it reduces the need for fertilizers, which consume a huge amount of energy to produce, so a lot of emissions, but it also helps to improve biodiversity and so has many other co-benefits alongside that. It does sound like a really kind of large variety of tools potentially in government's policy toolboxes there. And I could definitely see how some of them will be much more sensitive than others. I imagine consumers, if they feel they are being nudged, some people might react quite quite strongly to this, even though it's quite a nice conversation as opposed to be having in, in January when many people might be trying to do some things that might be beneficial on that front. Uh, I've spoken to a variety of colleagues doing um, the vegan Januaries. But yeah, I, I could imagine why governments are reluctant to to go for it. It's going to be quite unpopular if you're seen um, telling people what they should be eating. But equally, what you've outlined here seems it's it's urgent people act. And hopefully we will see governments picking interesting and impactful, impactful policies from these toolboxes. Maybe just as a last question, and I know this is definitely going to be a topic, food um, and broader implications of food systems are going to stay top of the agenda for 2023, not just because we have the lingering impacts of the invasion of Ukraine, but maybe especially from your perspective, would you say there's any key events or key developments that you're especially keeping an eye on for the rest of 2023? Yeah, definitely. So due to the political upheaval that we had um, last summer, there's quite a few announcements which were delayed in the UK. So one of the main things that we're expecting is the new environmental land management schemes, uh, which is due to be launched or we're meant to get more information on when it will be launched in January. And this is to replace the EU system of, of payments and intensifies more sustainable farming practices um, through payments for soil quality, biodiversity and tree planting. There's also a land use framework, which uh, is meant to be launched this year after the environmental land management schemes um, comes out. And this is going to set out how the UK will look at land use in the round and how the UK balances the need for land across a range of sectors, including agriculture, forestry and housing. In the longer term, looking at what Labour is proposing, it's likely to take they're likely to take a more interventionist approach to reduce emissions in the UK's food system. So where you've had the Conservatives have been very reluctant to tackle things like demand side, put in place demand side interventions or uh, introduce new policies to reduce consumption of meat. Labour in their 2019 manifesto pointed to various different interventions they could take, including improving local food networks, establishing a national food commission and they're more, much more likely to advocate for dietary change as part of their net zero strategy. And they've promised a net zero by 2040 on food production in Britain, which will need significant changes in behaviour. That sounds like a very interesting 2023 um, ahead, especially with all of these policies that we're essentially waiting for from last year. Um, can't wait to hear more about it when you're hosting your panel, Lorna. And thanks very much. Thanks, Isabel. On this note, we are at the end of our special episode looking ahead at our upcoming conference, The Politics of Food. If you are interested, we do have the in-person events taking place in Brussels on the 25th of January, in London on the 26th of January, and in Doha on the 29th of January, as well as the online event organized by our Singapore office. To find out more, please have a look at our website at www.events.global-council.com forward slash the politics of food. 
And if that was a bit complicated, we're also going to put it in the show notes. And another thing to keep your eyes um, peeled for is that we will release some of the events as a podcast after they've happened. So do have a look for that as well. And finally, even if you can't attend, if you or your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch either. You can find the contact details of our presenters or our broader sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in our podcast notes. Sorry, thank you to Lorna, Raf and Stephen, and thanks to you for listening.